attention. I hope you'll consider joining us uh, in Orlando. We have been working our butts off uh, to get ready for the convention. It's going to be really, really good. It's going to be literally the biggest, uh, boldest event we've ever done. Uh, you're, you're talking about literally a big tab, you know, independent and black, you know, like well over $100,000. And uh, and we are bringing it. We have over 40 people coming in that are um, – that are going to be in Orlando. Now, is it just is it, uh, is it in person or just virtual? We do have a virtual. We do have both. But uh, the virtual, there's only certain things you can catch from the virtual. The the in-person, the reason we're doing an in-person event, because remember, all through the year, we have lots of virtual events. And we did a ton during the pandemic. But this in-person event is the one that allows us to uh, really dig into the one, one of the most important ingredients in building community and building Black wealth. And that ingredient is called love. You know, love is uh, everything. And love is something that's easier to feel when you're in the same room, when you're in the same space. And why do I point to that? Well, because Black love and the ability for us to love ourselves and love our community and love each other, um, that's that's the glue. That's the glue that brings things together. Like, I, I've been doing business with my uh, brother for many years, and uh, and I don't care how much money we make because I love the dude. <laughs> That's it. And I have team members, you know, that are super loyal, and I'm loyal to them because we just we just all love each other, you know. And so uh, that those bonds for forging those bonds with each other is why you want to do in person events. And now that the pandemic's clearing up, uh, last year we we did the All Black National Convention virtually, um, and we and it was successful. Lots of people came, but I really wanted to come together in Orlando. That's why we're doing it that way. The hotel is super nice. It's luxurious. It's the Omni Hotel. Uh, nine restaurants, Disneyland, or you know, what is Universal Studios is right down the street. We have a whole curriculum for children, so it's very very child friendly. Uh, also, uh, we're covering pretty much everything that we think Black people need. With the the number one thing that drives all of this is um, is solution orientation, right? We're we're not bringing in people because they're famous. We're not bringing in people because they know how to hoot and holler and give a good speech. Uh, some of them do, but that's not, that doesn't, you know, black folks have been giving good speeches since slavery. Uh, a good speech doesn't do much more than just, you know, give you some good words that make you feel good. You can get that from your pastor at church. Uh, we're looking for people that want to solve problems. They can solve problems that are ready to, uh, you know, figure out the solution and execute the solution because uh, we're building the future, right? So uh, the, uh, the URL is allblacknationalconvention.com. And that's where you can take a look. Uh, if you have any questions, any questions at all uh, about anything, if you bought a ticket and you want to change your ticket or anything like that, go. Uh, you can email, write this email down. Somebody please type this in. It's support at theblackbusinessschool.com. Support at theblackbusinessschool.com. That's, you know, so write that. I'm going to say it one more time. Support at theblackbusinessschool.com. We have an excellent support team that is waiting, just sitting around waiting for you to reach out. Um, if you have any questions, if you ever hear about anybody that says, Oh, I went to I did something with the black business school and, and, and it didn't know I heard, didn't hear from anybody. Give them that email address support at the black because we've got people waiting. So sometimes what might happen is somebody might email the wrong address. They might email support at voicewalkins.com, or they might, uh, you know, reach out, you know, and, and miss something in the email, but we're there. We're on top of it. The team is extremely competent and I'm very, very proud of them. And, um, the last thing I'll throw in there is uh, we were sitting around and we were actually uh, thinking about some fun things we added, <clears throat> not just speed dating, you know. So if you're looking for a good relationship with somebody that has similar values, 
which is extremely important for uh, dating and family building and all that stuff. Uh, we are doing speed dating because, you know, my wife is a hopeless romantic and a relationship expert and a relationship therapist. She really wanted to do speed dating, speed dating. So they got together as a team and they put together a speed dating thing, uh, but also the speed networking. So if you're not looking to hook up with anybody, you, you know, you're, you're in a good situation. Uh, there's also ways that you can form business relationships with others as well. And then we have the fancy night. We have the B1 ball where uh, at, at the ball, uh, there, that is that is a VIP ticket because it's expensive. <laughs> it's like more expensive than our wedding was. And uh, and so uh, the, the, the menu will be chicken and salmon and uh, it, along with the vegetable and the starch. I can't remember exactly what it was and the dessert. And we're going to have an award show. We're going to have um, Victory Boyd, uh, who was who going to sing at the sing the national anthem at the NFL season opener. But she backed out, actually, because they told her family they, that she had to get the jab. And her family said, no, thank you. So they walked away from tens of thousands of dollars uh, for what they believe in. You don't have to agree with what they're doing to admire their courage. And so she's going to perform. Uh, she's such a, I, I mentioned her before. She's such a great singer that Jay-Z heard her sing and he signed her to Rock Nation right then. He signed the whole family to Rock Nation. They're all Rock Nation artists. So they're going to perform. Uh, we got a jazz band performing. We got some great rappers like Jay Ortiz and D1 coming by, Akila Nihunda, et cetera. And we're also going to give out awards. So we're giving out like the Black Excellence Award, uh, the Man of the Year Award, uh, the Woman of the Year Award, uh, the Black Business of the Year Award. We're giving out a Youth Leadership Award uh, to our young people who are doing it great. Last piece I want to throw in there, and then I'm going to be done talking about it for now. Uh, AllBlackNationalConvention.com. That's the URL. AllBlackNationalConvention.com is uh, one little point is um, if you are a college student or you know college students that want to come, college students, if they bring a valid student ID, they can get in for free. College students can attend the conference for free because uh, and, and the reason I'm doing that is because uh, we really need those young people to be involved in the movement that's going to build the next generation. When you're building out a, a multi-layer, multi-generational legacy, you must do everything you can to empower and train the next generation to execute at a high level. Right. So uh, the young leaders are more important than you and I, because we're going to be gone one day. They're going to carry on all this legacy, all this black excellence that we're putting in the air. They're going to be in these training sessions. They're going to be watching these videos 100 years from now. Uh, I want to make sure that they're ready for the future. So if you're a college student or you know one and they have a valid student ID, they can come to the convention for free. So that's it. That's my pitch. I hope you guys will, will join us. It's, it, we won't let you down. Every convention has been amazing. It's been life transforming. Also, your children will be transformed because we have a whole curriculum for children. So when your kids go home, they're going to be trained on wealth. They're going to they're gonna know more about wealth than the average college-educated adult by the time they walk out that building. Like That's how serious uh, we've, we've laid out the curriculum. we got the best in the world, uh, thought leaders, all that stuff. All right, so <clears throat> let me uh, jump in and tell you where we are uh, for tonight's um, book club meeting. Uh, we are on Chapter 5 of Black Labor, White Wealth by Dr. Claude Anderson. Uh, if you don't have a copy yet, uh, you can go to uh, black, uh, sorry, uh, powernomics.com. That's the URL, powernomics.com. And, uh, and we are reading a, ch a chapter where basically Dr. Anderson explains why blacks cannot uh, emulate ethnic immigrants. Uh, a lot of people have stated uh, regularly that, well, if black people just do what immigrants do, everything will be okay. Dr. Anderson makes an argument to say that's just not the case. And I think that's an important point to make, given that um, if you talk about the disparity in terms of resource allocation, uh, you guys know what, what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, they just spent six billion bringing Afghans over here. And I did the math. I think I could from the math, from the numbers I saw, it was something like two hundred thousand dollars per person or something crazy. It was a really high number. And I said, whoa. So, uh, you know, my thing is that uh, we were here first. 
<laughs> and uh, and we built this country. Uh, it, black labor did translate into white wealth. And I think that we have to push ourselves to the front of the line. And it doesn't mean we have to uh, hate anybody to do this. Uh, I want to make it real clear that we are not. Um, I, I don't I, I don't think you have to spend your time being mad at anybody or disliking anybody. So that means if you're LGBT, we, we don't hate you. Uh, it, it's just we are our particular belief system is that. Uh, your sexuality doesn't have to be the first thing I know about you. I want to know you as a human being. I really don't want to, I don't need to know what, you, what you're doing in the bedroom. I'm not going to judge you on that. Don't judge me. It's what it is, right? So um, I think that uh, it's real clear to understand that the B1 philosophy means that we're just going to be black first. You know, we're, anything that they're laying out there to divide and conquer, we're going to do our best to avoid that, right? And we're going to do our best to uh, utilize the superpower of empathy. Going back to that word love, remember we, t- we started talking about love. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. So love is, uh, is it love to, if I love you, that might also mean that I want to empathize and connect with you. I want to understand you, right? So that means that if I voted for Biden and you voted for Trump, uh, I'm not going to hate you for that, you know, because you're my cousin. Like I've been knowing you since you were 10, you know, or five or one or whatever. Right. So so rather than me saying I'm not talking to my cousin anymore because he voted for Trump, I say, you know what? That's my cousin. I don't care who he voted for. My cousin has the right. He has a sovereign right to vote for who he wants to vote for. Uh, I got the jab. My cousin didn't get the jab. That's okay. Uh, You know, he has a right to make a choice on whether or not he wants to get the jab. I'm not going to be mean to him. I might try to talk him out of it. You know, I might give my point of view, but I'm not going to come in there and say, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm going to destroy this love that we have. Remember, the love is what came first. The love is the precious asset that you owned. All right. Before you were divided. Uh, I'm not going to let anything undermine that. Uh, and I'm just going to find common ground with you. Look, I'm just going to say, look, <laughs> you did some things I don't agree with, but I still love you. Right. So uh, let me read uh, some of this here and I'm going to break it down as we go through it. So chapter five, uh, page uh, 86. And again, you can go to powernomics.com if you don't have a copy of the book. Uh, the book club is free. I just ask that you go to uh, respect Dr. Anderson and his work. Go to powernomics.com, buy the books. Christmas is coming. Buy books for your loved ones and stuff like that. Don't give them just a bunch of toys. Give them something that's going to work. Give them uh, pa- copies of Dr. Anderson's books. Give them shares of stock. Uh, this is just a suggestion. But you want to give them something that's going to make them better and help them build. So he says, during the last three decades, it's become politically correct to dump blacks into their racial problems and their racial problem problems into broad categories such as ethnic issues, special interests, and minority groups. It is also popular now to view the grievances of all groups as equal in all respects, placing blacks into an aggregation of dissimilar groups and equating their circumstance with other minorities is little more than political sleight of hand, an illusion of equality in a so-called colorblind American society. Um, you know, it's funny when you talk about dumping black people into into other groups, and sort of assuming that we're just like everybody else. Uh, we're on page 86, by the way, uh, Bonita. Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny. It reminds me, when I was um, uh, working on my PhD, uh, it, one of the rules of PhD students is that you are seen and not heard. You go to the faculty seminars where research is being presented, and you're not supposed to say anything. You're not supposed to ask questions. And and uh, and I, I followed that rule most of the time. I mean, I was kind of a big mouth. You know, I've always been outspoken about racial issues, and it got me in a lot of trouble. Um, but, you know, I kind of, in this case, I, I didn't necessarily feel the need to jump out there. And I remember there was a Stanford professor. I forgot his name, but I remember he was a big shot because they had a lot. They gave him a lot of respect. And he came in and he did this research paper where he was talking about investing attitudes, uh, you know, uh, based on whatever. I forgot what it was, how different ethnic groups have different um 
preferences when it comes to investing, different perceptions of risk, different ways of thinking about money and wealth and all that. And that's 100 percent true. Right. Uh, You know, things like uh, what they call risk aversion, how you view risk is very different for, say, black people than it is for other people. That's true. So he said something like he was going through his study and he he kept saying, um, you know, and, and, and my result, see, the, what you do is you write your paper and you come up with this great result and that's what gets you published in the journals. And that's what makes your work important. Right. So he's like, oh, my result is great and it works. You know, even if you control for the race of the of, of the participant in the study, even when you control for race, it doesn't matter. Even when you control for race. And he kept saying, even when you control for race. And I remember thinking he didn't really control for race. Right. Because uh, I knew the fundamental underlying assumption of his of his statistical model was that either you are white or you are non-white. He broke people into two groups, white and non-white. That's it, right? And I and I sat there and I said, and then I couldn't help it. I, You know me, sometimes my mouth gets me in trouble. My mother used to say, boy, your mouth will either make you great or get you killed. And <laughs> this one almost got me killed. Like I almost didn't become Dr. Watkins because of this, because PhD programs are really political. So I just said, well, did you really control for race? And I remember the guy froze and the room got quiet because I wasn't supposed to talk. And he looked at me like, I don't know you. Like, who are you? Right. Like you're a nobody. Right. And I was like, but I'm the only black person in the building. Right. Cause, cause no, there were no other black PhD students. There's literally you'd search far and wide to find black PhDs in finance or whatever. So I was like, well, actually you didn't control for race. I said, because you have two groups, you have white and you have non-white. And so when you have a group called non-white, what you're assuming is that everybody in the second group is the same. I said, isn't that like, saying that in the animal kingdom you're either a giraffe or a non-giraffe right like like you're saying the bumblebees are the same as the elephants like the, the bumblebee is not an elephant like stop it you know so so i didn't say in the mean way i was very um polite and when i gave my analogy i love to give analogies y'all know that right when i the way i talk and teach online right i, I give i love analogies analogies are fun and um it, it was funny because everybody in the room started laughing when I said, you know, like a bump, you're, you're saying the bumblebees are the same as the elephants or or you're saying everyone's either a giraffe or a non-giraffe. And, and everybody thought they thought that was hilarious. The only two people in the room that didn't laugh <laughs> was him and me. Right. I wasn't trying to make fun of him, but he was pissed. He was so mad. And afterward, all he did was he talked to like my bosses and like, you know, was like, who is this guy? And he, you know, like I had embarrassed him. But I'm sorry, I can't apologize if because I'm smarter than you. I know you're a Stanford professor and I know that you're a big shot, but you, you messed up. Like this was wrong. So, so long story short, it was like a big, a big mess. And, and it got, it, it really got to the point where um, I, I really got a lot of nasty pushback. And I just told my chairman, I said, you know what? I'm not coming to any more of these seminars because you don't want to hear my voice as a black man. You can't respect me. Then I'm not going to show up at all, which that was in my crazy young protest phase. But, but long story short, um, that's kind of what they do to us in politics. They do exactly what that stupid Stanford professor did. Now, 20 years later, I know that I was right. He was just mad that I was right. Um, but they, they, they do what that stupid professor did where he was a smart guy, but in this particular case, he was stupid. He was racially insensitive because he was basically saying black people are the same, you know, as every other group that being black is the same as being Asian, which is the same as being Afghan, which is the same as being Jewish which was the same as, you know, like even with Hispanic people, they're not even like each other. There are like 20 different versions of people that come from Latin America. The Cubans are not the same as the Mexicans who are not the same as the Colombians, right? And and so, so basically what Dr. Anderson is saying is that they've done that to you politically. They've lumped you into this group, this sort of plain vanilla group 
that where you're just sort of like, okay, you're not a white man. Well, we're throwing you in this pile. And all of the issues that you have are the same as everybody else's issues. So your issues as a black man are the same issues that a white woman has when she's thinking about feminism. And that really, what that does is that dilutes the claim that you have on the wealth of this country. Because uh, white women didn't build America the way black people did. I'm sorry, they just didn't. You know, Asian people didn't build America the way we did. Nobody else did. So, so what he's saying in particular is, you have to make sure that your claim is unique and specific and not get into this whole like like blended over over overly committed to this cross sectionality that they teach on a lot of college campuses now they 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 take our best and brightest these are our kids that made straight A's in school they drag them away to these big white universities and they get them to believe that they are sort of part of this big fat watered down coalition and then they come home and they end up becoming liabilities to the community when they should have been assets they're not specifically seeking to help the black community because they're openly distracted by all these other groups and all these other issues, and it becomes a complete mess. All right, so anyway, let me keep going. I'm on page 86. Uh, so he says, America is far from being colorblind, and equality exists only in the minds of those who pretend that inequality is equality. It is disingenuous to equate black Americans' conditions with any other ethnic, religious, or so-called disadvantaged minority. Blacks have a unique history in this country in that their status it was determined by the dominant society's national pub public policy on the use of black Americans. Grouping blacks with less aggrieved groups, in effect, mutes and obscures the legitimate grievances of blacks while veiling the moral, legal, and financial responsibility the dominant society has to correct the suffering of, at that time he says 36 million, but now it's 40 million black Americans. Declarations that the country is now colorblind are misstatements that resolve nothing. The colorblind myth simply maintains the status quo, thereby keeping blacks non-competitive and marginal. If four centuries of slavery and Jim Crowism have taught blacks anything about race relations, it is that as long as people can see, color will be a factor. Both by nature and nurture, humans are motivated to be self-centered and to place their self-interest above all others. Self-interest leads to competition among individuals and groups for material and social gains. Carl D. Negler reasoned that in a fluid and competitive social structure, all devices are used to or are called upon to assist in the gaining and maintenance of status, power, and economic advancement. So that's really important, right? Status, power, and economic advancement. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, I was watching um, the Sopranos movie with my wife today, and uh, and there they have a real. I was really surprised that they had a whole th racial theme in in the in the movie. It, it, it took place during the 1967 uh, race riots in Newark. And uh, it, it, there became a situation where uh, the Italian guys had a black guy that worked for them. Right. And they were used to the black guy, you know, doing his job and getting a couple, you know, getting some chump change in exchange for doing the work. And they didn't understand what they felt betrayed when the black guy was like, no, actually, I want to be the boss. Right. He went to a couple of black power seminars and stuff and got <coughs> pumped up about, you know, understanding the importance of ownership and control. So he started going head to head with them. And so in America, that's kind of uh, what, what you deal with is that you have a social structure that makes the assumption that black people are not there to be competitive with whites. So that's why you're going to get, <coughs> sorry, that's why you're going to get so much pushback uh, when you try to compete uh, because they're just not used to that, right? But it's gonna, it's natural. You, you should expect that, right? When you jump in the competition, you can't just whine and cry because they're, they're competing with you. Um, that's what competitors do. You compete. Okay, <clears throat> so he says dominant white society has a long history of masking the reasons that it would not correct the debilitating conditions that it has imposed on black people. 
Dan Lacey, an historian, criticized the hypocrisy of the dominant society's attitude toward Blacks, saying, quote, whites denounce Blacks as lazy and lacking ambition while they resent Black competition. They are angered by taxation for welfare and other social programs, but are equally angered by, by equal opportunity and affirmative action job policies for Blacks. They mock the lower academic achievement of Black children, then assign the best teachers' materials and financial resources to white schools in the suburbs. Now, um, now my, my 21st century solution to all of this is, is what I call the Black Core of Three. Well, we talked about this before. Black Core of Three says that in order for us to be empowered, we must educate our own children, create our own jobs, support Black businesses. So that means that rather than simply hoping that they give you, you know, the best educational material, just know that in our heads, we're really smart people. We have a lot of education in our community. We can educate our own kids. You know, Mary McLeod Bethune uh, built schools with a book and a building. That's all she needed was a book and a building. And she educated black kids better than any white school ever could. Because again, going back to that theme, the word for tonight is love, right? She loved those kids. When you love something or you love someone, you go harder and you go further for that thing or for that person than you would otherwise, right? So uh, one of the things that the system is lacking when it comes to your children is it's lacking love. They don't love your kids, right? They love their kids, right? And that makes sense, right? Because you don't love their kids. So why should they love your kids? Why are you mad that they don't love your kids when you don't even love their kids? So so, so the, the, what you probably want to do is, is understand that when he's talking about two major areas, when you talk about the deliver, delivery of education and the delivery of, of, of economics, all that can be done within the community and within the family, period. That's it. Um, that and, and really, this is why things like Project 2070 are so important. Uh, by the year 2070, and that's really a long shot. Really, you could do this by the year 2050. Uh, w- if you give your children that economic infrastructure now, like you start investing for them now and give them assets now, like with things like the $5 a day investing program, stuff like that, which you can pick up a copy at the theallblackagenda.com, then what happens is you're, when, you're, when your child hits adulthood, they're not they're not starving. They're not sort of struggling. They're not sitting there buried under student loans with no income where they have to go to work and they have to send their kids to a public school. Instead, they can say, because you've trained them right, you've trained them on all the things that matter. They would, you know, your daughter gets to be 26 and she marries another B1 kid, you know, in the year 2055. And so both of them have parents that did the $5 a day investing program. So each of them is walking into the relationship with assets. Each of them is walking in with $300,000 liquid inflation adjusted. Right. So they've each got $300,000 liquid. Uh, They also they don't just have money. They have a lot of skill and know how in two key areas. One is um, how to how to grow that money. And uh, how to make money through, say, a family business, how to operate together as a unit with love. See, there's that word love again, right, where we have a structured household where there's plenty of love and we're working together on some sort of family business that generates our income that's independent from the system. And then, two, they're able to um, educate their own kids because they can afford to stay home from work because they have an endowment. You've endowed them, right? Their family isn't just a family, it's an institution. The family is one of the most important institutions in our society. Every institution needs an endowment. So because you've endowed them way back in 2021, you endowed them. So in the year 2055, they're ready. They have an endowment, just like Harvard University has an endowment. 
major corporations have an endowment, right? So you've endowed them. Now they can stay home from work. They can build their family business. Uh, they can educate their own kids. They get together with some other B1 you know, type people, right? Who also have their endowments and also have their own family structure. And you say, okay, let's all educate our kids together. Let's let, we don't like the school system. So we're going to create our own little school system with a homeschool co-op where uh, basically we're going to have, we're going to rent out or lease out a building, bring all of our kids there. And we're going to hire a set of educators who are going to give a curriculum that we approve of, who are going to educate our kids. It's not that hard to do if you have time. It's not that hard to do if you know what you're doing. It's not that hard to do if you plan ahead. But if you try to do it now, it's tough, right? Because you got things like, well, I got to pay the rent, so I got to go to work, right? And and I can't, so I got to send my kids to school because I can't afford to stay home because I need to go and take this job the white man offered me in order to get by. It doesn't have to be that way if you have an endowment. Jewish people have been doing this since forever, right? They got Hebrew school, right? That's I remember when, uh, riding the school bus home and the Jewish kids would get off the bus and go to Hebrew school after they went to regular school. Um, you know, you have some Asian families that can do this, right? Our, our people did this back, you know, before integration, before they were allowed to go to white schools, right? So, so just think differently. That's how you can solve these problems. They are very solvable, very easily solvable. All right. So let me see here. <clears throat> so he says, whenever blacks attempt to change their circumstances by demanding assistance from the various levels of government, whites predictably ask the question, why can't blacks be self-sufficient like the Jews, Italians or other ethnic groups and help themselves rather than going to the government for assistance? Some blacks, those who lack competitive skills and income opportunities, ask government and white society for public assistance because they prefer public aid to stealing what they need. Most blacks are demanding compensation or reparations from the government for the centuries of expropriated labor and the legacies of slavery and Jim Crowism that continue to place European whites, Hispanics, and Asians over them. Blacks are too socially and economically handicapped to effectively compete in an integrated society with advantaged racial and ethnic groups or other protected minorities such as women and the disabled. To classify and equate blacks with these groups is not only dishonest, uh, a dishonest do-nothing approach. It also portends serious future social disturbances. America has ra- maintained a racial and ethnic ranking of preference. Uh, and he says, see table six. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go have to look at table six real quick. Um, I'm on page 88, by the way. So let me see if I can find this table in the back. Uh, table six, table six. All right. Let me see. Hmm. You know what? I don't know. I got to... You know, I, I'm not going to spend all, all the time looking for table six. I'm, I'm, not, I'm surprised it's not in the book. It's actually it's in the back. You know what? I'll get to it later. We'll go back to it. <clears throat> um, these preferred groups have a double advantage over blacks. They have a higher social acceptability, and they were never mistreated by dominant white society or government in the, the way 16 generations of blacks have been treated. This double advantage makes it clear why it is inappropriate or misleading to lump blacks into a minority category along with preferred and protected groups. Okay, so somebody says it's on page 101. So let me see if I can find it on page 101. Okay, there we go. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Donnie. Uh, all right, so let's see here. On table six, Dr. Anderson lists the U.S. government's preferential ordering of immigrants according to official quotas set in 1924. This is where uh, they pulled a real rope dope on black people. Uh, you actually had a far greater percentage of the population around the turn of the century than you do now. And that's because immigration policy has been specifically designed to water down the number of black people in America. Uh, basically, uh, it puts other groups ahead of you. And uh, and people have known this and there are people who've been saying this. But unfortunately, you have a lot of black leadership who've been paid to promote 
things that um, unfortunately are harmful uh, when it comes to diluting the black vote. So what he shows here on page 101 is that basically based on skin color, the darker your skin, the fewer uh, immigrants they were allowing in. So if you were English, uh, which has white skin and Protestant, it was wide open. You, you know, any number was acceptable. As many of them, they wanted as many of them as they could get. If you were Irish or, or from Western or Eastern Europe and Protestant, uh, they had quotas of 34,000, 28,000, 51,000. This was in 1924. Now, when you got down to Southern Europe, where you became Catholic, it dropped to 38,45. If you were from the Middle East and you were white and Jewish and Muslim, they had, they only let 124 people <laughs> per year <laughs> into the country. Um, if you get to, if you're from the far East, like if you're yellow, uh, it could drop to a hundred. If you were Hispanic and Brown, uh, they said it's restricted. And then if you were African or black, it was completely closed zero. So you go from the very extreme top where at the very top you have the British, uh, where it was wide open an infinite number of British people could come to the United States in 1924. But if you were black, the number was zero. They said, we do not want any black people in this country. We got enough Negroes here already. We don't need any more. So what's happened as a result of that is over the last 100 years, your vote has pretty much been diluted down to nothing. Every every election, your percentage of the population drops lower and lower and lower. So, uh, you know, uh, people can say what they want about voting and what it does and doesn't do. And I'm not going to argue with you about that all day. I'm just going to ask you if you tell me, you know, uh, what I should do politically. I'm going to ask you to show me evidence that 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 voting has really made a difference in terms of uh, the areas I care about. Black wealth, the education of black children and the uh, structure of black families, safety of black communities. I haven't seen the evidence. So maybe the evidence is out there. If you have it, show it to me. If not, then you might be just saying things because somebody else told you to say them. All right. So um, black it says black Americans cannot emulate European, Asian and, and Hispanic ethnics. Because social barriers have never permitted blacks to access the assimilation process, which is reserved for non-ethnic blacks. How can marginally existing blacks walk an ethnic path towards self-improvement when they are not treated like an ethnic group? And even if they were treat so treated, both the government and the majority society would continue to allow an unending flow of new ethnic immigrants to preempt blacks in the assimilation process, just like with Afghanistan, right? The, the six billion toward, you know, to bring in the Afghans. Um, and, and nothing like the reparations conversation is completely ignored. Uh, that's not even I don't think that's a discussion like that's not even something that is um, is even being, you know, addressed on any level. I haven't heard anybody from the Biden administration even talk about it. Um, so so uh, let's see here. He says, yet these more recently arrived ethnic groups have been assimilated and blacks have not. It was white society's willingness to offer assimilation to everybody but blacks. That, that has placed the greatest burden on Blacks and forced them to now seek alternative routes outside of mainstream white society to gain economic and political power. And that is true. Um, you know, I'm talking to you right now from, you know, a, a platform in a space that is non-mainstream. I have no interest whatsoever in, in trying to be mainstream. I don't want to be on TV. Um, I don't want to work at a big white university because I, I've done those things. I was on the faculty of Syracuse and blocked it at every step of the way when I tried to do things that I knew were really going to solve problems for black people. Um, I wasn't working for black people when I was at Syracuse. I was working for white people. And so in order to really work for black people, 
of it's a little bit tougher. You got to get off the grid a little bit. But what I'm hopeful for is that maybe within one generation, we can develop infrastructure where um, working on behalf of black people isn't such a horrible, you know, I don't say horrible, but such a difficult sacrifice. Right. Um, and so uh, that's my dream for the future, that, that being black ain't going to be as hard as it used to be. Uh, so it says, yet um, these more recently. Oh, wait, so let me see here. He says, how fair is it to ask blacks to emulate other groups when nearly 100 percent of blacks ancestors were in America? Before nearly 100% of the ancestors of today's Jewish, Italian, German, French, Japanese, Chinese, Irish, and Hispanics. Yet these more recently arrived groups have been assimilated and blacks have not. It was white society's willingness to offer assimilation to everybody but blacks that has placed the greatest burden on blacks and forced them to now seek alternative routes outside mainstream white society. I already said that. In addition, it is not possible for blacks to emulate ethnic group, immigrant groups because those groups have always had options to help them rise from one social class to another after they arrived to America. Immigrants were never burdened with the experiences or the legacy of slavery and Jim Crowism. They came to America with hope and a belief that the situation would be better than in their country of origin. Centuries of immigrants have entered this country uh, believing that it was the land of unlimited opportunity where a person was free to achieve and go as high as his skill and God-given talents would take him. As Asians and Hispanics find places in the economy, they are allowed to move upward on social and occupational ladders, says historian Andrew Hacker in his book, Two Nations, Black and White, Separate, Hostile, and Unequal. Blacks had no such options. Sixteen generations of blacks have been denied such a reality. Blacks continue to dream of integration as they spend their time and resources fighting for basic civil rights and the first-class citizenship that every ethnic immigrant has when he enters this nation. On the other hand, ethnic immigrants and other minorities have directly profited from the marginal success of the black civil rights movement that opened doors in the areas of employment, academics, and housing. The black movement, in its various efforts to establish affirmative action, eliminate discrimination, and seek economic parity, has drawn most of the fire from a disapproving, reluctant white society. When forced to make a civil rights accommodation, whites have hired women, Asian, and Hispanic ethnics and the handicapped ahead of blacks. These other groups have achieved significant advances over the past two decades, piggybacking on the civil rights legislation blacks fought long and hard to win. Black socioeconomic push was effectively neutralized when they became minorities. Let's take a breath on that. Let's process that for a minute. Um, so how many of you have noticed that um, the number one beneficiaries of affirmative action have typically been who? Who, who's benefited the most from affirmative action? Somebody answer that for me. There's a lot of woke people in the room, so I'll let y'all answer. There we go. White women. Thank you, Ryan and Kendall and Danny and Karen. Um, yeah, white women, right? White women have been the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action. And so uh, what Dr. Anderson seems to be saying is that, you know, when you're talking about calling yourselves minorities or even when people use terms like people of color, I don't get offended when I hear the term people of color. It's, it's not worth fighting over. But um, you got to be real careful about those coalitions because there's something about the coalition where um, blackness kind of always ends up sinking to the bottom. You, you kind of always end up getting put to the back of any bus that you're not driving. Right. Any bus that you're not driving, they're going to put you in the back of it. Right. So, um, you know, when you partner with these other groups that claim to have the same grievances you have, there's something weird that just kind of occurs where, uh, you know, you just kind of get pushed back there. And and, you know, in order to not make that happen, you either have to own the bus or you have to push real hard to make sure you're at the front of it or that you're one of the drivers. Um, the definition of minority con continues to expand and to become more amorphous. Today, almost everyone is a minority in some way. Anything that applies to every group has no real meaning for any group. 
However, the term minority holds major political advantage for those who wish to maintain the status quo. Blacks are further undermined when included in a minority category because none of the other so-called minorities were statutorily deprived by the government of their humanity or their right to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. So uh, that leads to the next section. Um, and uh, and by the way, any, anybody listening online, I'm going to have to shut out, shut down the online uh, part of the conversation. Uh, you can join us at blackkeystogreatness.com if you want to continue. It's totally free. Uh, you can join the book club meetings uh, for, for nothing. So uh, go to blackkeystogreatness.com and you can come into the book club. Uh, I'm going to have to shut this down because my uh, device is about to die. So um, uh, so so here's here's the deal. So, so next, Dr. Anderson's asking, are black people immigrants or not? So he says, historians often refer to American Indians as the nation's only indigenous or non-immigrant population group. This notion is false. If American Indians are America's only non-immigrants, then that would make black black people blacks immigrants, which are which they are not. The ancestors of American Indians migrated to North America across the Bering Straits from Asia. Black Americans did not immigrate to America. They were transported to America against their will. Inherent in the new term immigrant is the element of choice in the selection of a new home and a new nation. Many ethnic immigrants come to America fully equipped with the economic know-how and business acumen that they developed in their home countries. As required by U.S. immigration policies, uh, many are well-educated and have professional trades. They have business experience and access to products and industries in their mother country around which they can build businesses in this country. They have boundless hope and competitive motivation to succeed in this land of opportunity. Their business contacts and products may be related to importing ethnic foods, arts, and craft products or exporting American products to their home countries. Most black businessmen have limited business experience and few cultural products to market. For the most part, they do not have family, friends, or natural business contacts in Africa. European, Asian, and Hispanic immigrants come here with contacts in their countries of origin, which they often use for commercializing their culture into business opportunities in America. Few legal immigrants in modern times have come to America impoverished. Many are people of material and social substance at home, particularly those that came as political refugees forced to leave behind businesses and careers when crisis suddenly hit. Even if they are forced to start over, they are equipped to do so. Many enjoyed assistance from the U.S. government through legislative refugee programs for groups such as the Cubans, Vietnamese, Cambodians, Hungarians, Koreans, Afghans. He didn't write Afghans, but I'm going to add that in there. That's going to have to be in the next edition. Others received assistance and aid from the CIA and the U.S. State Department when they arrived. The immigration process encourages ethnics to develop and control their communities. While blacks are seeking to build their businesses around the integration process, ethnic immigrants are more nationalistic in their practices. That means that they are, they put themselves first. They, they, get, they get to sort of separate. They're not trying to sort of blend in with anybody and everybody. Okay. Um, uh, so let's see here. Uh, they do not buy into the melting pot myth. Understanding the principles of the way this country's economy works, they seek to create specialized niche economies around their culture within the larger framework of the national economy. Immigrants are not opposed to venturing into other racial or ethnic communities to take advantage of wealth building opportunities, but they keep their own community relatively closed to insiders or outsiders, excuse me, outsiders. This is true in the Little Italy's Chinatowns and Little Havanas in this country. In Miami, Florida, for example, Cubans control the number of non-Cuban businesses going into their communities of Little Havana and Halea. Unlike blacks, ethnic immigrants practice a business home rule that says, I got my neighborhood, now I'm going to get yours. 
They demonstrated their home rule philosophy and influence in 1992 when Cuban residents boldly blocked Iranian businessmen from opening stores in their communities solely because the entering business owners were not Cuban. Are you hearing me, Black people? Do you hear what I'm saying right now? Like, do you understand how other people are playing the game very differently from you? All that kumbaya, we'll let anybody in and come take our money stuff. That just That's just not how the world works. Like, people people don't do that if they want to protect their families. That's just, you know, it's not fun. doesn't seem very nice, right? We like to be nice to everybody. We like loving everybody. We like saving everybody. And it's okay to love, you know, but I but I got to love my own people first. Um, so, so your love is okay. You've just been taught to love in a self-sacrificing sort of way. You know, um, so let me keep going. As the major businesses, business owners in black neighborhoods in the Miami area, Cubans own most of the bars, liquor stores, grocery stores, automobile parts stores, banks, and gas stations in black neighborhoods. Cuban business owners take capital out of black neighborhoods, but will not allow non-Cuban businesses to set up and take capital out of their communities. Clearly, they understand the power dynamics of group economics. Blacks do not. There we go. I'm, I'm dropping my pen on that, and I, I'm going to, uh, because I got to actually use the bathroom. And so, uh, everybody who's actually listening online, I'm going to have to shut this part off. Um, hit the thumbs up button, please, if you haven't done it yet. Also, you can go to blackkeystogreatness.com because we're going to do the second half of the book club meeting. Uh, so feel free to go to blackkeystogreatness.com. You can get access to the book club for free. Um, and so um, so let me 